Welcome to Strange Talk. Hello, strangers. Welcome to part two of Spree Killers or Rampage Killers. So if you haven't listened to the first one, go ahead and go back and listen to part one of Spree Killers. Um, part one was mainly about <clears throat> people going to uh, certain places and conducting their spree killings. Um, in that episode, I talked about, um, I don't remember the names. Actually, I remember George Hennard. He was responsible for the, I believe, 1991 Luby's Massacre shooting, which happened in Kyleen, Texas. And then I talked about the very, very brutal and fucked up story of James Huberty, or Herberty, I believe. Either It doesn't really fucking matter, but he was the brutal one of that episode where he murdered and shot and killed indiscriminately, um, I believe it was 21 people, at a 19, in 1984 at a San Ysidro McDonald's in San Diego. San Diego. But uh, So go back and check out that if you haven't listened to. That's the part one of the Spree Killers. This one is going to be a little different. Um, uh, aside from maybe two, the majority of these ones are going to be mainly school shootings um, that took place at elementary schools. And you're probably familiar with uh, a few of them, at least maybe two of them, um, because they happened not too long ago. Um, so without much further ado, let's get into the very first one of the spree killings. And this one is the University of Texas Tower shooting. On August 1st, 1966, after stabbing his mother and his wife to death the night before, Charles Whitman, a former Marine, took rifles and other weapons to the observation deck atop the main building tower at the University of Texas at Austin then opened fired indiscriminately on people in the surrounding campus and streets. Over the next 90 minutes, he shot and killed 16 people, including one unborn child, and injured 31 others. Surprisingly, a final victim died in 2001 from the lingering effects of his wounds, um, which he suffered upon the day that it happened. So Charles Mickman was 25 years old, and he was studying architectural engineering. In 1961, Whitman was admitted to the University of Texas at Austin on a scholarship from the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program. Well, at UT, Whitman met and married his wife, Kathleen, or Kathleen. Whitman struggled with gambling and bad grades, and he lost his scholarship in 1963. Before the attack, Whitman had sought professional help for overwhelmingly violent impulses, including fantasies about shooting people from a tower. It's funny enough that he had that type of uh, fantasy. An autopsy after his death revealed a brain tumor, which if you think about it, um, going back to the brain tumor thing, uh, that that actually might be... Um, there's a lot of evidence showing that that could be linked to um, aggression, and impulse impulsivity, I believe that's a word. I don't even know. But um, uh, take for instance, there's an interesting documentary about um, NFL players and NFL players who had suffered um, severe head trauma. Um, that also could be the link to the wrestler Chris Benoit, who murdered his family and committed suicide. He was he I believe I don't know if it shows in records, but he may have been suffering from a brain tumor as well, and um, there's been a very good 
strong amount of evidence linking brain tumors to causing severe aggression, depression, um, any issue, pretty much of the word. Um, and so there's a lot of strong evidence showing that there might be a link to that, what's causing people to um, act out and impulsiveness and just murder. And uh, that could be a strong link to, because uh, I mean, believe uh, Chris Benoit actually took a lot of hits um, to the head, you know, during his wrestling career uh, with the chairs and stuff like that. So that could be the reason why he may have killed his family was because he's suffering from severe head trauma. So Whitman killed his mother, Margaret Whitman, and his wife, Kathleen Lessener Whitman, between midnight and 3 a.m. on August 1st. In a note, he professed his love for both women, saying he had killed them to spare the future humiliation in the case of his mother and suffering. So basically, he left a note um, near their bodies where he basically said the reason why he killed them was because he didn't want them to live in humiliation because he was planning on doing the horrible crime, which he's going to later commit. Later that morning, Whitman rented a hand truck and cashed $250, equivalent to $1,900 in today's time, worth of bad checks at a bank. He then drove to a hardware store where he purchased a universal M1 carbine, two additional ammunition magazines, and eight boxes of ammunition, telling the cashier he planned to hunt wild hogs. At a gun, It seemed like people back in the day were like really naive and just took everybody at their word. <laughs> At a gun shop, he purchased four more carbine magazines, six additional boxes of ammunition, and a can of gun cleaning solvent. At Sears, he purchased a Sears Model 60 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun before returning home. Whitman sawed off the barrel and buttstock of the shotgun, then packed it onto his footlocker, packed it into his footlocker, along with a Remington 706mm bolt-action hunting rifle a 35 caliber pump rifle and a 30 caliber carbine M1 rifle and a 9mm Luger pistol a Galacia Brasia I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right if you got nuts are out there let me know if I fuck that up a 25 caliber pistol a Smith & Wesson M19 357 Magnum revolver and more than 700 rounds of ammunition so he was pretty much prepared to say the least he also packed food Coffee, vitamins, dexedrine, excedrin, earplugs, jugs of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, a transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, and a bottle of deodorant. He put khaki overalls on over his shirt and jeans. At approximately 11.25, Whitman reached the University of Texas at Austin, where he showed false research assistant identifications to obtain a parking permit. Whitman wheeled his equipment toward the main building of the university. <sighs> Entering the main building, Whitman found the elevator did not work. An employee named Vera Palmer activated it for him. Whitman thanked Palmer, stating, Thank you, ma'am, before repeatedly saying, You don't know how, how happy that makes me. Oh, God, that's kind of like fucking psycho-ish, dude. Exiting the elevator on the 27th floor, he hauled the dolly and equipment up a flight of stairs to a hallway, from which another flight led to the rooms skirted by the observation deck. There, he encountered receptionist Edna Townsley. 
Whitman knocked Townsley to the floor and split the back of her skull with his rifle butt, then struck her above the left eye before dragging her behind a couch. As Cheryl Botts and Don Weldon entered the reception area from the observation deck, Walden noticed Whitman's guns and assumed that he was going to the observation deck to shoot pigeons. I guess that's just some fucking normal thing that people do, just go up and shoot pigeons. Whitman smiled and said, Hi, how are you? As they went down to the elevator. He then pushed a desk across the entrance from the stairway. So, before I continue on, obviously, I already said a few bits of violence here, but obviously this is going to be a brutal episode. It's going to be very violent. It's going to be talking about murders, and it's going to be talking about psychotic people just straight up fucking killing people. So obviously, this episode is not for children. So if you are driving in <laughs> in the car right now and you're listening to this with your children, please don't. Um, so, you know, this is your warning now because it's going to get pretty brutal from here on out. Um, so let's let's continue. MJ Goober, um, Gabor, I'm sorry. MJ Gabor, his wife Mary Frances Gabor, and their sons Mike and Mark were in Austin visiting MJ's sister Margaret Laport and her husband William Laport. Around 11:45 a.m., they were climbing the stairs from the 27th floor when they encountered the desk Whitman had placed in the entrance to the reception area. As Mike and Mark squeezed past. Whitman came forward and fired his shotgun, hitting Mike in the shoulder and Mark in the head, then fired down the stairs, striking Margaret and Mary Frances. MJ and William, farther down the stairs, were not hit and went for help at Mike's urging. Whitman then shot Townsley in the head before exiting to the observation deck. Mike Gabor's injuries left him unable to complete his Air Force training, and Mary Frances was left paralyzed from the neck down and legally blind. At 11.48 a.m., Whitman began shooting from the observation deck on the 230 observation deck 231 feet above the ground, <laughs> targeting people on the campus and on a section of Guadalupe Street known as the Drag, which was home to coffee shops, bookstores, and other student hangout spots. Wilson was the first person Whitman shot from the tower. She and Ekman were leaving the student union when Wilson, eight months pregnant, was shot in the abdomen at 11.47 a.m. Her baby was killed instantly. As Ekman went to her aid, he was shot in the chest and died instantly. Passerby Rita Star patterned, lay next to Wilson, and for an hour comforted her and kept her conscious. Eventually, James Love, John Artley Fox, and others left their protected locations while Whitman was still shooting, and carried Wilson to safety. I'm sorry, while Whitman was still shooting, and carried Wilson, there's a lot of fucking W's in this damn, like, names. While Whitman was still shooting, and carried Wilson to safety, and also retrieved Ekman's body. Wilson remained hospitalized for three more months, three more months after the shooting. Boyer, the third person shot from the tower, was struck in the lower back, Huffman was shot next in the arm and fell to the ground, feigning death. Secretary Charlotte Darshori came under fire as she ran to help Boyer and Huffman. She took refuge behind a concrete flagpole for an hour and a half and was not injured. Matson, Eck, and Herman were walking to lunch when a bullet blew off part of Matson's wrist. Jesus. 
Ike was struck in the arm by shrapnel, then in the leg by a bullet when he left cover to bring Matson to safety. Kelly was shot in the leg while helping Matson and Ike and Herman into his shop. Ashton was shot in the chest on his way to meet Matson and Ike for lunch. Basically, these are all the victims of the, the tower shooting of Texas or of Whitman as well. Uh, Boyer, the third person shot from the tower, was struck in the lower back and... Oh, I'm sorry. I just totally missed the spot. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> Harvey <laughs> and Evan Gines uh, were leaving the tower for lunch when they heard shots. They returned inside where a guard told them it was safe to leave again. About 100 yards from the tower, Harvey was shot in the hip. Evan Nades was struck in the left leg by the ricochet of the same shot. Hernandez was shot in the leg around 11.45 a.m. while delivering newspapers on his bicycle near the West Mall entrance. Soon after, Griffith was shot in the shoulder and chest, and her right, right lung was pierced. She died seven days later. Carr was hit in the spine while coming to Griffith's aid. He died approximately one hour later. About 11.55 a.m., David Herbert Gundy was returning to the library for a forgotten book when a shot passed through his upper left arm and entered his abdomen, severing his small intestine. Uh, also, too, uh, uh, I believe I had on the spree killings of part one, somebody had reached out to me and said, like, how is it that when a bullet hits you, it doesn't just go straight out to you? Because sometimes that doesn't happen. So let me explain a little bit. Um, basically when a bullet hits you, it could actually ricochet inside of your body. And if that happens, it's going to cause more damage and it's basically, you're basically done for it sometimes. So say for instance, you get shot in your chest, the bullet, depending on where it hits, it can hit like say your shoulder and it can bounce off your shoulder from your shoulder, like your sh shoulder blade. And it just can ricochet off the bullets until eventually it just stops. Or it could, if you get lucky, it could just completely just go through you. Um, so that's why sometimes if you get shot in one area, it can ricochet from your chest and go down to your leg. It, it just all depends on where you get hit. So it's not like in the movies where it just goes in and out. It doesn't always work like that. The Littlefields married nine days. They were just married. We're leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip. That's Brenda Littlefield. Adrian Littlefield was struck in the back as he bent over her. After some time, all three were rescued by an armored car, which had been pressed into service to reach the injured. During surgery, it was discovered that Gunby, which is um, David Herbert Gunby, had only one functioning kidney to begin with, which had now been severely damaged. He was in great pain for the rest of his life, and in 2001, he died one week after discontinuing dialysis. His, de his death was officially ruled a homicide due to the lingering injuries of him during the Texas shooting. Claudia Rutt and her boyfriend Sontag, his name is Paul Bolton Sontag, had just run into Willer, a friend, um when they heard shots. They took refuge behind a construction barricade, but when Sontag abruptly stood up, 
Whitman shot him in the mouth, killing him instantly. Rut tried to reach Sontag as Willer, her name is Carla Sue Willer, attempted to restrain her. A shot passed through Willer's left hand and struck Rut in the chest. Sontag's grandfather and KTPC news director Paul Bolton learned of his grandson's death as the victim's name were recited on air that day. Schmidt took cover. His name is Roy Del Schmidt. Roy Del Schmidt took cover with others behind his car some 500 yards from the tower, but after about 30 minutes stood up in the belief they were out of range and was immediately shot in the abdomen. He was the fatally farthest from the tower. At 12.08 p.m., Billy Paul Speed was with another officer and others behind decorative bolsters on the South Mall when he was shot through a gap in the masonry. He died soon after at the hospital. About noon, Harry Walchuk was leaving a magazine store on Guadalupe Street when he was shot in the chest. Billy Snowden, believing himself out of range, was struck in the shoulder while standing in a barbershop doorway at over 500 yards. He was the victim farthest from the tower. Sandra Wilson was shot in the chest on Guadalupe Street. Abdul Kashab, an exchange student from Iraq, and Paulos, his fiance, were shot near Guadalupe and 24th Street. Lana Phillips believed she was out of range but was shot in the shoulder. There's no word if she survived or not. I believe she probably survived, but I'm pretty sure we'll find out later. Oscar Royvela and Garcia, his girlfriend, were shot near Hogg Auditorium. Students Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington dragged them both to safety. <clears throat> a shock struck Avellino's Esperanza's left arm near the shoulder, shattering the bone. His brother and uncle dragged him to safety. Robert Hurd, a press reporter and veteran Marine, was shot in the arm. John Scott Allen was looking at the tower through a window of the student union when a bullet struck the window, followed by a second shot which severed an artery in his right forearm. Morris Holman was using his business ambulance to take victims to the hospital when he was shot in his right leg at the corner of 23rd and Guadalupe. He later recalled, I laid there for about 40 to 45 minutes, listening to two construction workers arguing about who was going to expose themselves to recover me. F.L. Foster and Robert Freyd were wounded in the crossfire between Whitman and those shooting from the ground. Della Martinez and Marina Martinez, visiting from Monterey, Mexico, were both wounded by bullet fragments. Dolores Ortega suffered a cut on the back of her head, either from flying glass or a direct hit from a bullet. Stewart was not shot, but was injured in the commotion. Some mistook the sound of shots for the noise from a nearby construction site, or thought that people falling to the ground were part of a theater group, or an anti-war protest. One victim recalled that as she laid bleeding, a passerby reprimanded her and told her to get up. Among those who grasped the situation, many risked their lives to take the wounded to safety. An armored car and ambulance from local funeral homes were used to reach the wounded. 
Four minutes after Whitman began shooting from the tower, a history professor was the first to telephone the Austin Police Department at 11.52 a.m. Patrolman Billy Speed was one of the first officers to arrive and took refuge with the colleague behind a columned stone wall. Whitman shot through the six-inch space between the columns of the wall and killed Speed. Officer Houston McCoy, 26, heard of the shooting on his radio. As he looked for a way into the tower, a student offered to help, saying he had a rifle at home. McCoy, the student, drove the student to his home. I'm sorry, McCoy drove the student to his home to retrieve the rifle. Ellen Crum, a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner, was a manager at the university bookstore co-op. Across the street, he saw a 17-year-old newspaper boy being dragged and went to break up what he thought was a fight. Learning the boy had been shot and hearing more shots, Crum rerouted street traffic out of harm's way. Unable to make his way back to the store safely, he then made his way to the tower where he offered to help the police. Inside the tower, he accompanied Department of Public Safety agent Dub Cohen and Austin police officer Jerry Day up the elevator. Cohen provided Crum with a rifle. Around noon, Officer Romero Ray Martinez was off duty at home when he heard about the attack on the news. Having called the police station, he was instructed to go to the campus and direct traffic. Once there, he found other officers already doing that, so he went to the tower. He assumed he would find a team of officers there, but when he reached the 27th floor, he found only Cohen, Crum, and Day. Officers attempting to reach the tower were forced to move slowly and take cover often, but a small group of officers, including Houston McCoy, began making their way to the tower via underground maintenance tunnels. Officers and several civilians provided suppressive fire from the ground with small weapons and hunting rifles, forcing Whitman to stay low and fire through storm drains at the foot of the observation deck's wall. A police sharpshooter in a small plane was driven back by Whitman's return fire, but continued to circle at a distance, seeking to distract Whitman and further limit his freedom to choose targets. Martinez Crum and Day searched the 27th floor where they found MJ Gabor. Day removed him and Martinez started up the stairs to the observation deck and Crum insisted on covering him, asking Martinez to deputize, deputize him first. Beneath the stairwell leading to the reception area, Martinez found Marguerite Lamport, Mark Gabor, Mike Gabor, and Mary Gabor. Mike Gabor gestured to the observation deck saying he's out there. Martinez reached the observation deck first. He told Crum to remain at the door. McCoy and Day reached the observation deck a few minutes later. Day, after helping MJ Gabor, had returned to the 27th floor. He realized Martinez had gone up to the observation deck and told McCoy. At some point, Crum accidentally fired his rifle. Around, around 1.24 p.m., I was going to say 124 p.m., while Whitman was looking south for the source of the rifle shot, Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner of the observation deck. Martinez fired with his rifle with his revolver, missing, and McCoy hit Whitman twice with his shotgun, killing him. After Whitman was shot and killed by McCoy, Martinez then took McCoy's shotgun from him, having emptied his own weapon, and fired another shot into Whitman's body at point-blank range. 
Martinez then ran from the scene yelling, I got him, I got him. In the immediate aftermath, Martinez was nearly shot himself by those on the ground who did not yet realize that Whitman was dead. And that's how they fucking killed Whitman, pretty much. They just they just kind of went, like, gung-ho. If you imagine, like, a 90s action film where they just deputize, like, fucking civilians, like, just imagine, like, Keanu Reeves just barges in, he's like, I got this. That's pretty much how they fucking took this dude down. And believe it or not, uh, the article that I found of this um, shows the picture of Whitman's body. And um, it's not as graphic as it's not as graphic as one would think, but there is a lot of blood. So I'll probably be <laughs> posting that to my Instagram so you guys can see it. You can choose to see it. I'm obviously going to put a warning because it's going to contain graphic content. But if you guys want to see it, um, be sure um, to you know, basically be following me at, at strange talk podcast to get a look at, um, Whitman's body. So basically after the incident, they erected, um, memorials, um, to the victims that lost their lives and to honor the brave officers and the civilians that basically went in and murdered, not murdered, but, um, just basically just gave justice, good old American style to Whitman. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the brutal one, not the most brutal, but it is one that is slightly brutal. Um, but we'll move on to some more, um, shootings. The rest of them are going to be basically schools aside from maybe two of them. I believe, um, one of them takes place at a church. The other one takes place, you guys know, because it recently happened. So it's still kind of fresh into our memories, but that one is of Stephen Paddock who was the Las Vegas shooter. So let's jump into the next one. One eight three to back, copy active shooter, UCC 1140, Umco College Road. Do so we have a report of one person shot? UCC 1140, Umco College Road, an active shooter. UCC, this is going to be the Snyder Hall. The Somebody is outside one of the doors shooting through the door. There is a female in the computer lab. We do have one female that has been shot at this time. 1174 Medical Aid. This is for an active shooter at UCC. 1174 Medical Aid. We have a report of one person shot. UCC 1140 on Call College Road. An active shooter. Exchanging shots with him. He's in the classroom on the it's going to be the southeast side of Snyder Hall. Copy, Rosic 17, exchanging gunshots right now with the Mallies in the classroom on the southeast side of Snyder Hall. 30, Rosic 17, unconfirmed report that he's got a long gun. Copy, Rosic 17, unconfirmed report he has a long gun, 1045. Located next to the library, there are about 35 people in the hall piled in. The campus center is on lockdown. 183 was turning onto College Road, and it looks like they're going to shut down the road. Copy. Code 4, suspect is down. 3770, go ahead. The suspect is down. We've got multiple gunshot wounds. We're going to need multiple ambulances on scene. So what you just heard was um, 911 phone calls and police 
um, communicating amongst each other through radio and dispatch um, at the UCC, um, also known as the Umbiqua. I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but the Umbiqua Community College, which is um, in Roseburg, Oregon. And that perpetrator was actually, uh, his name was Chris uh, Harper Mercer. And he was a 26-year-old student who was enrolled at the school and fatally shot an assistant professor and eight students in a classroom. So all of what you heard, uh, the beginning was a 911 phone call. Um, I'm pretty sure you can tell which one is the 911 calls and which one isn't. And it's just police, um, the scanners and everything. But I thought it would be interesting for you guys to hear that. Um, and that's why I decided to put it in in the beginning. Um, so now we're going to go over the details of this community college shooting in Roseburg, Oregon, that was conducted by Chris Harper Mercer. And the, the surprising and shocking thing about this was that um, I can't really remember during my research if it said that um, s- staff were responsible for it. I don't I have no idea what the fuck that was, but I just heard a loud bang right now outside my apartment window. But anyways, um, I wasn't sure if, um, I don't recall seeing if it was staff, but I know for a fact that the mother was kind of aware of his odd behavior and she, for some reason, just if, because I mean, I get it. A part of me gets it because I'm a parent myself. I have, I have a daughter and it's kind of a hard thing to, um, I mean, my daughter's fine right now. She's only two years old. But uh, it's kind of like a, a weird thing to imagine a, a parent. So you're a parent. And I mean, most of you are probably going to be like, no, you fucking do something about it. Which, yeah, I totally agree. But maybe I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, but she was kind of aware of his behavior, as I'll you know go into details later on. But she chose to not do anything about it. She chose. She chose. She chose. She chose to kind of ignore the situation because she figured maybe it's he'll grow out of it or something. But he's twenty six years old at this point, and I don't really think he would. But anyways, let's um, let's go on it. This actually mass shooting was actually Oregon's um deadliest um. This is considered the deadliest mass shooting. So at ten thirty eight a.m. The first 911 call was made from Snyder Hall on the school campus reporting gunfire. Students reported that the shooting began in classroom 15, where English and writing classes are conducted. Chris Harper Mercer, who was a student in the writing class, entered the classroom and fired a warning shot. Some witnesses said he then forced fellow students to the center of the classroom before he opened fire on the other students. He deliberately spared one student's life so that the student could deliver a package from him to the police. He forced this student to sit at the back of the classroom and watch as he continued shooting with two handguns, a Glock 19 and a Taurus P2 24-7. Harper Mercer first shot the assistant English teacher at point-blank range. He allegedly asked two students for their religion, shooting them after they gave him a response. Other witnesses said he asked if students were Christians, telling those who replied in the affirmative, saying yes, that they were, that they would go to heaven as he shot them in the head. Although one victim was agnostic and another was pagan, some students were shot multiple times. One woman was struck several times in the stomach while trying to close a classroom door. One witness said he made a woman beg for her life before shooting her and shot another woman when she tried to reason with him. 
He also shot a third woman in the leg after she tried to defend herself with a desk. One victim, Serena Don Moore, was killed while trying to climb back into a wheelchair at his orders. Two plainclothes detectives from the Roseburg Police Department were the first to respond to the scene. They arrived at the hallway of Snyder Hall at 10.44 a.m. Six minutes after the first 911 call was received. Two minutes later, Harper Mercer reloaded his handguns and leaned out of the classroom, firing several shots at the officers. They fired three shots in return, hitting him once in the right side. After two more minutes of shooting at the officers, the wounded Harper Mercer retreated into the classroom and killed himself like a bitch with a single shot to his head. None of the, the other officers were injured. According to the ADL, which is the Anti-Defamation League, the issue most often raised about the shootings is whether they constitute an anti-Christian or anti-religious hate crime. By some accounts, the shooter asked his victims about their religion before killing them, but others point out that his rage was not limited to religious matters and stressed his mental health history. The report that the shooter asked victims about their religion before killing them comes from a survivor as well as family members of the victims, but no online evidence of anti-Christian rhetoric was found. So they weren't sure if he was basically, his motive for conducting the mass shooting was a religious uh, anti-religious one they so they didn't know if the only reason why is because he was asking before he shot his victims in the head if they were religious so they weren't sure if to deem it as an anti-religious like crime hate crime i mean following the shooting bureau of alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives or atf agents launched a campus-wide search for explosives six firearms were recovered from the crime scene five handguns, and one long gun. None were owned by his mother. The long gun, a 556 by 45 millimeter Delton DT-115, or DTI-15, you gun nuts can um, basically tell me that I fucked it up, semi-automatic rifle was not used during the incident. Chris Harper Mercer also had a flak jacket and enough ammunition for a prolonged gunfight. Police said they found eight other firearms at his apartment and that all of the weapons were purchased legally by him or members of his family. Almost four hours after the shooting, Laurel Mercer was interviewed by Oregon State Police Detectives, but the content was not released until September 13 of 2017. She said her son had been prescribed medication, but it didn't seem to help, and that he had been born angry. She told police that he enjoyed watching videos of killings on the internet. Their home was so disordered that after the murders, she couldn't tell what guns were actually missing. Now, I'm going to read over the names of all the people that lost their lives due to Chris Harper Mercer. And uh, so basically, he killed a total of nine people. Eight died at the scene, while the ninth died at Mercy Medical Center. And their names are Lucio Alcaraz, age 19. Trevin Taylor Anspach, 20. Rebecca Ann Carnez, 18. Quinn Glenn Cooper, also 18. Kim Saltmarsh Dites, 59. Lucas Eibel, 18. Jason Dale Johnson, 33. Lawrence Levine, 67. And last, Serena Don Moore, she was 43. Eight other students were injured, some with multiple gunshot wounds. Among the wounded was Christopher Chris Mintz, a U.S. Army veteran who was studying fitness training at the college, who responded when he heard screams 
coming from an adjacent classroom. He blocked the connected door with his body to allow his class to escape. He next left the building to alert students in the library to evacuate. Returning to the shooting scene, he advised the wounded student to stay down and be quiet. At that point, Harper Mercer leaned out of, from the classroom into the hallway and shot Mintz five times as he was first standing, then falling to the floor. Because he said Mintz had called police, Mintz pleaded that he he not be killed on his own on his son's birthday, and said an apparently emotionless Harper Mercer withdrew back into the classroom. Uh, so basically, um, Chris Mintz was pleading with him as he was being shot at, saying, "Please don't kill me. It's my son's birthday," and maybe it struck a chord with Harper Mercer, um, but because he actually retreated back to the classroom after he said that. At a press conference held on October 3rd, Douglas County Sheriff John Hanlon thanked Mintz for his actions. To help pay for his medical bills, Mintz's family set up a GoFundMe account. By the end of that day, it already had received more than $650,000 in donations. Mintz was released from a hospital October 7th, and on October 13th, a 16-year-old girl who was critically wounded in the shooting was released from the hospital. What the sad part about it is that we have to, we live in a time where we have to um, do GoFundMes in order to pay for medical expenses. That should really say how fucked up our country really is. You know, instead of just giving us the necessity of living, we have to pay for it, which I get it. You know, everybody has to make a living, but Jesus, the fact that we have to make a GoFundMe is just really crazy. So Christopher Sean Chris Harper Mercer, the perpetrator, he was born July 26, 1989, and was enrolled in the introductory com composition class where he shot his victims. He was born in Torrance, California to Ian Mercer and Laurel Margaret Harper, his mother, and lived with them during the separation, oh, I'm sorry, lived with his mother during the separation and divorce of the parents, who agreed to share legal custody. Harper Mercer continued to live with his mother and remained with her when she moved to Oregon for work. His father had not seen him for about two years following his son's move out of the state. Um, so I want to give, a, I'm not going to give all the details about the dude because I don't really think he deserves that much recognition um, because he's a fucking, he's a big old douchebag. But uh, apparently, uh, just to give a little bit of synopsis of, of his behavior, he would basically um, frequent a popular website. I used to go to this website a lot, but not specifically for the reason that he did. But it was called 4chan. He would go to the R9K board, which is um, just basically, they don't really give a synopsis of what it is, but he went to that board specifically the day of, or I mean, the day before the shooting took place and he wrote on the message board some of you guys are all right don't go to school tomorrow if you're in the northwest um happening thread will be posted tomorrow see you later space robots so basically he was giving a warning to the people that may live in his area or attend the same school as him on 4chan he was basically telling like don't come to school and i remember when that actually happened because people were talking about it um i'm even um just sorry to just diverge off the topic but i'm even possibly thinking about doing a specific episode centered around 4chan because there's a lot of shit that has actually happened on 4chan that's really interesting um <clears throat> so and according to the los angeles times unnamed law enforcement sources described him as hate-filled man with anti-religious and white supremacist leanings and with long-term mental health issues 
His mother, Laura Harper, had previously written anonymously in an online forum that both she and her son had Asperger's syndrome. <laughs> so um, that's what I mean. Like she knew that there was something wrong with him, yet she decided to not do anything about it for some reason. Maybe she tried to. Maybe she just was at her wit's end and just decided, fuck it. There's not really much I can do for my son at this point. So that's it for Christopher, well, Chris Harper Mercer. Now let's get into the next one. So this next one is one that many of you probably will remember. Um, I remember when it happened. It's actually not that long ago. It's maybe about, what, 10 years, 15 years? No, 15 years. What the heck? But it, it didn't happen that long ago. So it could still be engraved, engraved in a lot of people's memory. But I remember, for some reason, I remember this one talked about a lot. So what I'm speaking of is the Virginia Tech shooting. The Virginia Tech shooting was a school shooting that occurred on April 16th, 2007 at West Ambler Johnson Hall and Norris Hall at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University in Blacksburg, Virginia. I'm probably going to mess up his name because it's very Chinese. Su Hu Cho. I didn't really sound too bad. It might be. <laughs> I might have said it wrong. I think it's Sung. Yeah, Sung Hu Cho an undergraduate student at the university and a U.S. resident of South Korea origin, shot 49 people on campus with two semi-automatic pistols, killing 32 and wounding 17 others. Several other victims were injured, jumping from windows to escape Cho. As police stormed Norris Hall to find and arrest Cho, he shot himself in the head with a pistol and died instantly. The shootings occurred in two separate incidents. The first incident was in West Ambler Johnson Hall, a residence hall where Sung Hu Cho killed two students. The second incident was in Norris Hall, an academic building on the opposite side of the campus, where the other 31 deaths, including that of Cho himself, and all the non-lethal injuries occurred. Cho used two firearms during the attacks a 22 caliber Walter P22 semi-automatic handgun and a 9 millimeter semi-automatic Glock 19 handgun. Cho was seen near the entrance to West Ambler Johnston Hall, a co-ed residence hall that houses 895 students. At about 6:47 a.m., normally the hall is accessible only to its residents via magnetic key cards before 10 a.m. Cho's student mailbox was in the lobby of the building so he had a pass car allowing access after 7.30 a.m., but it is unclear how he gained earlier entrance to the building. At around 7.15 a.m., Cho entered the room with which freshman Emily J. Helsher shared with another student. Helsher, a 19-year-old from Woodville, Virginia, was fatally wounded. After hearing the gunshots, a resident assistant, Ryan C. Clark, attempted to aid Hilsher. Cho shot and killed Clark, a 22-year-old senior from Martinez, um, Georgia. Hilsher remained alive for three hours after being shot, but no one from the school, law enforcement, or hospital notified her family until after she had died. Cho left the scene and returned to his room in Harper Hall, a dormitory west of West Ambler Johnston Hall. While police and emergency medical services units were responding to the shootings in the dorm next door, Cho 
changed out of his bloodstained clothes, logged onto his computer to delete his email, and then removed the hard drive. About an hour after the attack, Cho is believed to have been seen near the campus Duck Pond. Although authorities suspected Cho had thrown his hard drive and mobile phone into the water, a search by divers was unsuccessful. Almost two hours after the killings, Cho appeared at a nearby post office and mailed a package of writings and video recordings in which Cho said, You made me do it, likened himself to Jesus Christ on the cross, and ranted about debauchery, Hendoism, brats, and snobs. He actually sent that to the NBC News um, channel station. Those, these provided to be of little investigative value to authorities. The package was postmarked, postmarked 9.01 a.m. He then walked to Norris Hall. In a backpack, he carried several chains, locks, a hammer, a knife, two handguns with 19, 10, and 15 round magazines, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. About two hours after the initial shootings, Cho entered Norris Hall, which housed the engineering, science, and mechanics program, among others, and chained the three main entrance doors shut. He placed a note on one of the chain doors, claiming that attempting to open the door would cause a bomb to explode. Shortly before the shooting began, a faculty member found the note and took it to the third floor to notify the school's administration. At about the same time, Cho had begun to shoot students and faculty on the second floor. The bomb threat was never called in. The first call to 911 was received at 9.42 a.m. According to several students, before the shooting began, Cho looked into several classrooms. Aaron Shinnan, or Sheehan, <laughs> an eyewitness and survivor who had been in room... I said Shinnan... <laughs> In room 207, told reporters that the shooter peeked in twice earlier in the lesson and that it was strange that someone at this point in the semester would be lost looking for a class. At about 9.40 a.m., Cho began shooting. Cho's first attack after entering Cho's first attack after entering Norris occurred in an advanced hydrology engineering class taught by Professor G.V. Long. Logganathan, in room 206. Cho first shot and killed the professor, then continued firing, killing nine of the 13 students in the room and injuring two others. Next, Cho went across the hall and into room 207, where instructor Jamie Bishop was teaching German. Cho shot at a student, then at Bishop, then at the rest of the students, killing Bishop and four students. Six students were wounded. Cho then moved on to Norris 211 and 204. In both of these classrooms, Cho was initially prevented from entering due to barricades erected by instructors and students. In room 204, Professor Livy Libresco, a Holocaust survivor, forcibly prevented Cho from entering the room. Libresco was able to hold the door closed until most of his students escaped through the windows but he died after being shot multiple times through the door. One student in his classroom was killed. Instructor Jocelyn Couture Nowak and student Henry Lee were killed in room 211 as they attempted to barricade the door. When Cho broke through the barricade and entered the room, Air Force ROTC cadet Matthew Laporte charged the gunman and died after taking heavy fire in an attempt to save lives. He was later 
posthumously awarded the Airman's Medal of Medal for his actions. According to Virginia Tech Review Panel's report, Matthew Laporte charged. According to, I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up. According to the Virginia Tech Review Panel's report, 11 students died in room 211, and the six students who survived all suffered gunshot wounds. However, one of the survivors, Clay Violand, stated that he played dead and escaped without injury. Cho reloaded and revisited several of the classrooms. After Cho's first visit to room 207, several students had barricaded the door and had begun tending to the wounded. When Cho returned minutes later, Caitlin Carney and Derek O'Dell were injured while holding the door closed. Cho also returned to room 206. According to a student eyewitness, the movements of a wounded Walid Shallon distracted Cho from a nearby student after he after the shooter had returned to the room. Shallon was shot on a second time and died. Also in room 206, Partai Mamora Holomon Lombatorian may have shielded fellow student Guillermo Coleman from more serious injury. Coleman's various accounts make it unclear whether this act was intentional or the involuntary result of Lombatorian being shot. Why can't People just have easy, more, more easily pronounced last names. <laughs> Students barricaded the door of room 205 with a large table after substitute. Professor Haiyan Chang and a student saw Cho heading toward them. Cho shot through the door several times but failed to force his way in. No one in that classroom was wounded or killed. Hearing the commotion on the floor below, Professor Kevin Granada took two took 20 students from a third-floor classroom into his office and where the door could be locked. He then went downstairs to investigate and was shot and killed by Cho. None of the students locked in Granada's office were harmed. Approximately 10 to 12 minutes after the second attack began, Cho shot himself in his right temple with the Glock 19. He died in Jocelyn Kotor Nowak's intermediate French class, room 211. During the second assault, he had fired at least 174 rounds, killing 30 people and wounding 17 more. All of the victims were shot at least three times each. Of the 30 killed, 28 were shot in the head. During the investigation, State Police Superintendent William Flathardy told the state panel that police found 203 live rounds in Norris Hall. He was well prepared to continue on. During the two attacks, Cho killed five faculty members and 27 students before committing suicide by shooting himself. The Virginia Tech Review Panel reported that Cho's gunshots wounded 17 other people. Six more were injured when they jumped from second-story windows to escape the gunfire. Sidney J. Vale, the director of the trauma center at Carlin Renoke Memorial Hospital said that Cho's choice of 9mm hollow point ammunition increased the severity of the injuries. Oh, man, so much fucking violence. The shooter was identified as a senior at Virginia Tech. 23 year old Sung, Sung Hoo Cho, a South Korean citizen with U.S. permanent resident status, majoring in English. The Virginia Tech Review Panel's August 2007 report devoted more than 20 pages to Cho's troubled history. 
At three years of age, Cho was described as a shy, frail, and and wary of physical contact. In eighth grade, Cho was diagnosed with severe depression as well as selective mutism, an anxiety disorder that inhibited him from speaking in certain situations and or to specific people. While early media reports carried reports by South Korean relatives that Cho had autism, the Massengill report stated that the relationship between selective mutism and autism was unclear. Cho's family sought therapy for him, and he received help periodically throughout middle school and high school. Early reports also indicated Cho was bullied for speech difficulties in middle school, but the Virginia Tech Review Panel was unable to confirm this. Other reports that he was ostracized and mercilessly bullied for class, height, and race-related reasons in high school, causing some anti-bullying advocates to feel that the review panel was engaging in an authority-absolving whitewash. Supposedly, high school officials, officials had worked with his parents and mental health counselors to support Cho throughout his sophomore and junior years. Cho eventually chose to discontinue therapy. When he applied and was admitted to Virginia Tech, school officials did not report his speech and anxiety-related problems or special education status because of federal privacy laws that prohibit such disclosure unless a student requests special accommodation. Police arrived within three minutes of receiving an emergency call, but took about five minutes to enter the barricade building. When they could not break the chains, an officer shot out a dead a deadbolt lock leading into a laboratory. They then moved to a nearby stairwell. As police reached the second floor, they heard Cho fire his final shot. Cho's body was discovered in Jocelyn Kotor Nowak's classroom, room 211. In the aftermath, high winds related to the April 2007 Northeastern prevented emergency medical services from using helicopters for evacuation of the injured. Victims injured in the shooting were treated at Montgomery Regional Hospital. Ah, man. So, I mean, I could go on more of the response and everything, but everybody knows, everybody remembers when the attack happened and how everybody felt. I, I think because it was, it was technically such a, I mean, every school shooting is a deadly shooting. There is at least some victims. I think there's, there's quite a bit, actually, that I've seen where there wasn't any victims at all, just mainly injuries. Um, but the thing that that surprises me the most about it is I feel like, sure, you can't predict that somebody's going to snap one day and just decide to start killing everybody. But I feel like there is signs that there is something wrong. And I feel like we don't take that in account. If... It, but maybe now because we're more aware of it and school shootings are just kind of a norm i think i think now we're becoming more aware of it so let's move on to the next one Nine one one. What's the location of the emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School. Okay. What makes you think that? Because somebody's got a gun. I saw a glimpse of somebody. They're running down the hallway. Okay. Well, they're still running. They're still shooting. Sandy Hook School, please. So as you heard, those were the nine one one calls. Well, it was a nine one one call. There's actually multiple nine one one calls 
that happened for Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. So that's what this next one is going to be about. The Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred on December 14, 2012 in Newton, Connecticut, United States, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza fatally shot 20 children between 6 and 7 years old, as well as 6 adult staff members. Before driving to the school, he shot and killed his mother at their Newton home. As first responders arrived at the school, Lanza committed suicide by shooting himself in the head, as most of these shooters tend to do. As of November 30th, 2012, 456 children were enrolled in kindergarten through the fourth grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The school's security protocols had recently been upgraded, requiring visitors to be individually admitted after visual and identification review by video monitor. Doors to the school were locked at 9.30 a.m. each day after morning arrivals. Sometime before 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Friday, December 14, 2012, Adam Lanza shot and killed his mother, Nancy Lanza, aged 52, at their Newtown home. Investigators later found her body clad in pajamas still in her bed, with four gunshot wounds to her head. Lanza then drove to Sandy Hook Elementary School in his mother's car. Shortly after 9.35 a.m., using his mother's Bushmaster XM-15 E2S rifle and 10 magazines with 30 rounds each, Lanza shot his way through a glass panel next to the locked front entrance doors of the school. He was wearing black clothing, yellow earplugs, sunglasses, and an olive green utility vest. Initial reports which had stated that he had been wearing body armor were actually incorrect. Some of those present heard the initial shots on the school intercom system, which was being used for morning announcements. Principal Don Hotsprung and school psychologist Mary Sherlock were meeting with other faculty members when they heard but did not recognize gunshots. Hotsprung Sherlock and lead teacher Natalie Hammond went into the hall to determine the source of the sounds and encountered Lanza. A faculty member who was at the meeting said that he and three women called out, Shooter, stay put, which alerted their colleagues to the danger and happened to save their lives. An aide heard gunshots. A teacher hiding in the math lab heard school janitor Rock Thorne yell, Put the gun down, and he, Rick Thorne, survived. Lanza killed both Hotspring and Sherlock. Hammond was hit first in the leg and then sustained another gunshot wound. She lay still in the hallway and then, not hearing any more noise, crawled back to the conference room and pressed her body against the door to keep it closed. She was later treated at the Dunbury Hospital. A nine-year-old boy stated that he heard the shooter say, put your hands up and someone else say, don't shoot. He also heard many people yelling and many gunshots over the intercom while he and his classmates and his teacher took refuge in a closet in the gymnasium. Diane Day, a school therapist who had been at the faculty meeting with Hot Sprung, heard screaming followed by more gunshots. A second teacher, who was a substitute kindergarten teacher, was wounded in the attack. While she was closing a door further down the hallway, she was hit in the foot with a bullet that ricocheted. Lanza never entered her classroom, fortunately. After killing Hotsprung and Sherlock, Lanza entered the main office but apparently did not see the people hiding there and returned to the hallway. School nurse Sarah Sally Cox, 60, hid under a desk in her office. She later described seeing the door opening and Lanza's boots and legs facing her, her desk from approximately 20 feet away. 
He remained standing for a few seconds before turning around and leaving. She and the school secretary, Barbara Halstead, called 911 and hid in a first aid supply closet for as long as four hours. Janitor Rick Thorne ran through hallways, alerting classrooms. Lanza then entered a first grade classroom where Lauren Rousseau, a substitute teacher, had herded her first grade students to the back of the room and was trying to hide them in a bathroom. When Lanza forced his way into the classroom, Rousseau, Rachel Avino, a behavioral therapist who had been employed for a week at the school to work with a special needs student. Jeez, can you imagine? It's like, you had just started a week and already this is going on. And 15 students in Rousseau's class were all killed. 14 of the children were dead at the scene. One injured child was taken to a hospital for treatment, but was later declared dead. Most of the teachers and students were found crowded together in the bathroom. A six-year-old girl, the sole survivor, was found by police in the classroom following the shooting. The surviving girl was hidden in one of the corners of the classroom's bathroom during the shooting. The girl's family pastor said that she survived the mass shooting by remaining still and playing dead. When she reached her mother, she said, Mommy, I'm okay, but all my friends are dead. The child described the shooter as a very angry man. A girl hiding in a bathroom with two teachers told police that she heard a boy in the classroom screaming, help me, I don't want to be here, to which Lanza responded, well, you're here, followed by more hammering sounds. God, that guy's, Adam Lanza is just, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even begin to imagine. Um, Lanza next went to another first grade classroom nearby at this point. There are conflicting reports about the order of events. According to some reports, the classroom's teacher, Victoria Lee Soto, had concealed some of the students in a classroom or bathroom, and some of the other students were hiding under desks. Soto was walking back to the classroom door to lock it when Lanza entered the classroom. Adam Lanza walked to the back of the classroom, saw the children under the desks, and shot them. First grader Jesse Lewis shouted at his classmates to run for safety, and several of them did. Lewis was looking at Lanza when Lanza fatally shot him. Another account, given by a surviving child's father, said that Soto had moved the children to the back of the classroom and that they were seated on the floor when Lanza entered. According to this account, neither Lanza nor any of the occupants of the classroom spoke. Lanza stared at the people on the floor, pointed the gun at a boy seated there, but did not fire at the boy, who ultimately survived. The boy got up and ran out of the classroom and was among the survivors. A Hartford Courant report said that six of the children who escaped did so when Lanza stopped shooting, either because his weapon jammed or he erred in reloading it. Earlier reports said that as Lanza entered her classroom, Soto told him that the children were in the auditorium. When several of the children came out of their hiding places and tried to run to safety, Lanza fatally shot them. Soto put herself between her students and the shooter, who then fatally shot her. Anne-Marie Murphy, the teacher's aide who worked with special needs students in Soto's classroom, was found covering six-year-old Dylan Hockley, who also died. Soto and four children were found dead in the classroom. Soto near the north wall of the room with a set of keys nearby. One child was taken to the hospital but was pronounced dead later. Six surviving children from the class and a school bus driver took refuge at a nearby home. According to the official report released by the state's attorney, 
Nine children ran from Soto's classroom and survived, while two children were found by police hiding in a class bathroom. In all, 11 children from Soto's class survived. Five of Soto's students were killed. First grade teacher Caitlin Rogue, 29 years old, hid 14 students in a bathroom and barricaded the door, telling them to, keep, to be completely quiet and to remain safe. It is believed that Lanza bypassed her classroom, which was the first classroom on the left side of the hallway, possibly because following a lockdown drill weeks earlier, Rogue had failed to remove a piece of black construction paper covering the small window in her classroom door. Lanza may have assumed that Rogue's classroom was empty because the door was closed and the window was covered. School library staff Yvonne Setch and Mary Ann Jacob first hid 18 children in her part of the library, the school used for lockdown and practice drills. Discovering that one door would not lock, they had the children crawl into a storage room where Sheck barricaded the door with a filing cabinet. Music teacher Mary Rose Christopic, 50, barricaded her fourth graders in a tiny supply closet during the rampage. Adam Lanza arrived moments later, pounding on the door and yelling, let me in, while the students in Crystal Pick's class quietly hid inside. Two third grade students, chosen as classroom helpers, were walking down the hallway to the office to deliver the morning attendance sheet as the shooting began. Teacher Abby Clements pulled both children into her classroom where they hid. Laura Feinstein, a reading specialist at the school, gathered two students from outside her classroom and hid with them under desks after they heard the first gunshots. Feinstein called the school office and tried to call 911, but could not be connected due to the lack of reception on her cell phone. She hid with the children for approximately 40 minutes, at which point law enforcement came to lead them out of the room. The police heard the final shot at 9.40 a.m. They believed that it was Lanza shooting himself in the lower rear portion of his head with the Glock 20 SF in classroom 10. Lanza's body was found wearing a pale green pocket vest over a black polo shirt, over a black t-shirt, black sneakers, black fingerless gloves, black socks, and black canvas belt. Other objects found in the vicinity of Adam Lanza included a black boonie hat and thin frame glasses. The Glock was found apparently jammed near Lanza and the rifle was found several feet away from him. A 9mm Sig Sauer P226, I'm pretty sure I said that wrong, which was not fired during the incident, was found on Lanza's body. Authorities determined that Lanza reloaded frequently during the shootings, sometimes firing only 15 rounds from a 30-round magazine. He shot all but two of his victims multiple times. Most of the shooting took place in two first-grade classrooms near the entrance of the school. The students among the victims totaled eight boys and 12 girls, all either six or seven years old. And the six adults were all women who worked at the school. Bullets were also found in at least three cars parked outside the school, leading police to believe that he fired at a teacher who was standing near a window. When police interviewed survivors, a teacher recalled hearing Lanza curse several times, as well as saying such things as, look at me, and come over here, and look at them. <sighs> Man, the thing that I don't understand is why, why, I, I, I think that's why we're so fascinated, because most of the time, whether it's like a bullying thing, we can't ever really determine why they did what they did, but maybe this will set, shed some light on it.
Adam Lanza presented with developmental changes before the age of three. These included communication and sensory difficulties, socialization delays, and repetitive behaviors. He was seen by the New Hampshire Birth to Three Intervention Program and referred to special education preschool services. Once at elementary school, he was diagnosed with sensory integration disorder. Sensory processing disorder does not have official status by the medical community as a formal diagnosis, but is a common characteristic of autism. His anxiety affected his ability to attend school, and in eighth grade, he was placed on homebound status. This is for children who are too disabled, even with supports and accommodations to attend school. When he was 13, Lanza was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome by a psychiatrist, Paul Fox. At 14, his parents took him to Yale University's Child Study Center, where he was also diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. He frequently washed his hands and changed his socks 20 times a day, to the point where his mother did three loads of laundry a day. He also sometimes went through a box of tissues in a day because he could not touch a doorknob with his bare hand. Lanza was treated by Robert King, who recommended extensive support be put in place and prescribed the antidepressant Celexia. He took the medication for three days. His mother Nancy reported on the third morning he complained of dizziness. By that afternoon, he was disoriented. His speech was disjointed. He couldn't even figure out how to open his cereal box. He was sweating profusely. It was actually dripping off his hands. He said he couldn't think. He was practically vegetative. He never took the medication again. A report from the Office of the Child Advocate found that Yale's recommendations for extensive special education supports, ongoing expert consultation, and rigorous therapeutic supports embedded into Adam Lanza's daily life went largely unheeded. So basically they're saying that because of his possible mental state, this is what could have led him to do it, which, I mean, obviously I don't doubt it, but sometimes I feel like, I don't know, but moving on. So unfortunately I was going to move on to another story related to the spree killings, um, keeping with the theme of school shooters. And aside from Steven Paddock, who is a Las Vegas um, shooter, um, I had plenty more stories, but unfortunately, due to time strengths, uh, I didn't realize how long this episode was turning into, so obviously it is a lengthy one, but I will continue on with that by either making a part three or including it in the segment This Week in Crime, where, as you know, This Week in Crime is where I bring you strange, funny, or interesting news stories that happen around the world or in good old America. So stay tuned for that. Um, you'll obviously find out when that's going to be happening, and I keep saying obviously a lot, but... So thank you for joining me on this episode of Spree Killers. Um, so stay. T- hopefully you guys do enjoy it because if you get if I'm tiring you out, tar- ta- tiring you guys out, then you know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe you guys enjoy the bloodbath carnage that is school shootings because it's sad that we live in a time where school shootings have become the norm, where we even have to find like ways of uh, like. There's a lot of things that I've been seeing that's been going on with like. They're making bulletproof backpacks for children. That's fucking sad. But, I mean, hey, that's the life we live in today now. Um, the giveaway is still happening, so you guys stay tuned for that. I'm sorry that I'm just taking such a long time with that. 
Um, what I will be giving away is a t-shirt with the logo of Strange Talk Podcast, the show, and also giving a mug away with the same thing on it as well. Um, and along with those two items, you will be receiving a Funko Pop as well. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I want to do the giveaway, which is why that's taking so long for me to just put it out there. But when it when I do give the details out, be sure to be following me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, so that way you can get the details of how to try to win those. Um, also, if you don't get to be the chosen winner for the giveaway, you can get a t-shirt and a mug if you sign up for my Patreon. You can do so by visiting patreon.com slash strangetalkpodcast and, you know, earn those sweet little mugs and not only earn something cool, but also support the show if you enjoy it. Also, if you enjoy the show and you're able to do it through whatever podcast listening app that you do use and listen to Strange Talk Podcast, if you can, it would help me out a ton if you can rate and review the show. Rate me five stars if you really like it. It doesn't matter just as long as you rate it because it helps me and the show to get more notice on Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming podcast service you use. Also, um, if you want to send me a news article for This Week in Crime to be featured in it, you can do so by email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com or you can send it to me by sending me a DM on Instagram at strangetalkpodcast. <sighs> That's a mouthful. So thank you guys for joining me on another episode of Strange Talk, Spree Killers Part 2. Um, so like I said, I'm probably going to be featuring more stories on This Week in Crime just to get it over with so I can move on to another one and or I might just do a whole another Part 3. It just depends on the length of the episode. So again, thank you guys for joining me, and as always, stay strange.